You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from the North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. For more gospel-focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com. Let's pray together. Father, would you please enlighten our minds and soften our hearts as we consider what the Bible teaches about the deity of Christ, our mighty God. Amen. The Bible prophesies this in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This sermon is the second in a four-part series on those four titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Last week, we heard a sermon on that first title, Wonderful Counselor. Pastor Brian Lichty explained the literary context of Isaiah 9. In this sermon, I'm not going to repeat that. Instead, I'm going to build on the literary context by focusing on the title, Mighty God. And I'm going to do this in the context of the whole Bible, especially the New Testament. So now that Jesus has fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, now that we have the whole Bible, we can better answer the question, what does it mean that this child will be called the mighty God? So I'd like to preach to you from the entire Bible on this subject, Jesus, the mighty God. Jesus, the mighty God. I plan to exult in Jesus the mighty God, by answering three main questions. First question is, why does it matter that Jesus is God? I'll briefly present five reasons that the deity of Christ is so important. And then second, what crucial truths did the early church affirm about Jesus? I'll briefly tell the story of how the early church affirmed three truths about Jesus. And then we'll spend most of our time with this third question. What does the Bible say about why Jesus is God? I'll present four reasons from the Bible that Jesus is God. Four reasons for the deity of Christ. Now let's start with that first question about how important this is. In other words, so what? Why does it matter whether or not Jesus is God. Why should we celebrate it, especially at Christmas time? Well, the five reasons I'm going to share with you aren't the only reasons, but they're some of the most important reasons. Reason number one, if Jesus is not God, then you don't need to obey him. But if Jesus is God, then God the Son created you. And if he created you, 
then he owns you and you owe him. That means you should do what he says. Reason number two, if Jesus is not God, then he can't save you from God's wrath. But if Jesus is God, then Jesus is the only person who can save you. Jesus is the exclusively qualified person who can save you. Only the God-man can righteously righteous unrighteous people. Only the God-man can be the mediator between God and man. So a sinful and finite person like you, you can't satisfy God's wrath by paying for the sins of other people. Jesus can't. Here's a third reason this matters. If Jesus is not God, then you shouldn't trust him to save you. But if he is God, then Jesus should be the object of your faith, the person you are trusting. The gospel, that's the good news, is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners and that God will save you if you turn from your sins and trust him. Trust Jesus. Here's a fourth reason this matters. If Jesus is not God, then he's a liar and he can't give you eternal life. But if Jesus is God, then he speaks truthfully and he is the exclusive source of eternal life. And reason number five, if Jesus is not God, then he is not exalted at God's right hand. But if Jesus is God, then the risen King Jesus is right now exalted at God's right hand, where God the Father addresses Jesus as God. And if that's the case, then you are under the authority of King Jesus, whether you acknowledge it or not, and you owe him your allegiance. Those are just five reasons it matters that Jesus is God. And those are some reasons it's worth celebrating that Jesus is God, especially at Christmas time. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because I haven't shown you yet from the Bible that Jesus is God. Before I do that, I wanna quickly tell you the story of how the early church rejected false views about Jesus and affirmed the truth of who Jesus is. So number two, what crucial truths did the early church affirm about Jesus. Here are those three truths. Number one, Jesus is truly God. Number two, Jesus is truly human. And number three, Jesus is one person with two natures. So a nature just refers to a complex of attributes. Jesus has a divine nature and he has a human nature and he's one person. I'm gonna very briefly tell you some of the story of early Christianity. Early in the church's history, some people taught what is not true about Jesus. And their false teaching was so bad that theologians call it heresy. Heresy is false teaching that is incompatible with the fundamental truths of Christianity. I'm gonna briefly highlight six of those early heresies about Jesus. Each of those heresies 
rejected at least one of these three crucial truths about Jesus. And what the early heresies emphasized went back and forth like a pendulum swing. So they went from stressing humanity to stressing deity or stressing two natures or stressing one nature. And they did it in a way that uh, overemphasized or underemphasized these truths about Jesus. And there are various names for these heresies. I don't want to get too technical, so I'll just briefly describe each heresy. The first heresy says that Jesus is truly human, but he's only a man. Jesus is not God. In contrast to that first heresy, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is truly God. The second heresy says that Jesus is an emanation from God and thus not fully God and he only seems to be human. He's not truly human because then he would possess an evil physical body. In contrast to the second heresy, the New Testament teaches that Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus is truly human. The third heresy says that Jesus is truly human and he's divine but not truly God because he's not eternal. So Jesus was like God but not the same as God, not equal with God. God the Father created the Son. There was a time when the Son did not exist. And this third heresy contrasts with what the New Testament teaches, which is that Jesus is truly God. The fourth heresy says that Jesus is God, but he's not truly human. So his soul and his mind were divine, but only his body was human. And in contrast to that fourth heresy, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is truly human. The fifth heresy says that Jesus is truly God and truly man, so that's good. But then it says that he has two natures that correspond to two distinct persons. So Jesus is a divine person with a divine nature, and he's a human person with a human nature. So in contrast to that fifth heresy, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is one person, with two natures. God the Son added humanity to his single person when he took on flesh. He did not lose any divinity. And then the sixth heresy says that Jesus is God, but he's not truly human because he doesn't have a human nature. He doesn't have two distinct natures. Instead, Christ's divine nature overshadows his human nature, which results in a, a mixed nature. And in contrast to that sixth heresy, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. The early church rightly rec uh, rejected these six views of Jesus and affirmed the orthodox view of Jesus, which is that Jesus is truly God, truly human, and one person with two natures. Theologians have clear and precise terms for the person of Christ because the early church so carefully responded to these wrong views about Jesus. Christians affirm that Jesus is truly God, Jesus is truly human, and Jesus is one person with two natures. So now we're going to focus on that first crucial truth. Jesus is truly God. Why do we believe that? Why do we believe that Jesus is truly God? Now we're ready to answer the third and final main question, which is the meat of the sermon. What does the Bible say about why Jesus is God? Four reasons. I first remember the time that I heard a sermon that made a case for the deity of Christ. 
I was 16 or 17 years old. And that argument was so riveting and compelling. I bought a cassette tape of the sermon and I listened to it over and over and over. This may be the first time that you've ever heard a sermon that systematically argues from the Bible that Jesus is God. And my prayer is that the the cumulative truth of God's word will bring you to your knees so that you adore Christ the Lord. And there are many ways to systematically argue from the Bible that Jesus is God. I'm going to do it by presenting four arguments that Jesus is God And each argument begins with the letter W, witness, words, works, and worship. That's the the backbone of the, the four arguments. So number one, the witness Jesus receives from others shows that he is God. The witness Jesus receives from others shows that he is God. If only Jesus bore witness to his deity. Jesus knew that his testimony alone would not be valid to the Jews because the Old Testament law demands that every testimony be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. That's why in John 5, Jesus cites a number of witnesses. Those witnesses include the Father, John the Baptist, Jesus' own works, the Old Testament scriptures, Moses. Here, I'm going to briefly highlight three witnesses. God the Father, the apostles, and the scriptures. So these are three witnesses that show that Jesus is God. Let's start with God the Father. God the Father testifies that Jesus is God. After Jesus, Jesus got baptized, Matthew 3, and at his transfiguration, Matthew 17, here's what God said. He proclaimed, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. My beloved son. Hebrews 1 clarifies that God the Father means that Jesus is God when he refers to Jesus as his son. This is Hebrews 1, 5 to 8. It says there that God would never call any of the angels his son, but he calls Jesus his son. And God the Father declares that God the Son is superior to angels and equal with himself. Here's what Hebrews 1.8 says. Of the Son, he, that is God the Father, says, your throne, O God, is forever. God the Father addresses God the Son as God, Hebrews 1.8. Now, side note here, you might be wondering, if God the Father is God and Jesus is God, does that mean there are two gods? And the answer to that is no. Uh, We believe that God is triune. We affirm the Trinity because the Bible teaches all three of the following statements. Number one, there is one God. Number two, Three persons are called God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And number three, those persons are distinct. We believe that because Scripture teaches that. 
So that's number one. Uh, God the Father testifies that Jesus is God. Number two, the apostles testify that Jesus is God. And I'll highlight what a handful of the apostles testify. Start with Matthew. Matthew testifies in Matthew 1.23 that Jesus' name, Emmanuel, means God with us. God with us. John testifies in John 1.1, the word was God. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God in the flesh. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's referring to Jesus as the only God. 1 John 5.20 says he, referring to the Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 5.20. Thomas, another apostle, testifies in John 20.28, my Lord and my God. He said that, this is Doubting Thomas, he, he said that after he saw and felt the side of the resurrected Jesus, he looked at another person and addressed him as my God. Another apostle, the apostle Paul, testifies that Jesus is, Romans 9, 5, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Paul calls Jesus God. God over all. In Romans 10.9, he says, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. In the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. It says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12.3. Philippians 2.6, Paul writes that Jesus was in the form of God. In the form of God. He possesses the essential qualities of God. And Philippians 2.11, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. Colossians 2.9, in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily the whole fullness of deity. And this is a really important one, Titus 2.13. says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the, the Greek grammar here very explicitly says that the Savior, Jesus Christ, is our great God. Those two titles refer to the same person. Jesus is our great God. Same thing when Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.1, he refers to our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ, according to the Greek grammar there, refer to the same person. Jesus is our God. Peter also says in a sermon in Acts 10 that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. 
So that's a, a handful of apostles testifying that Jesus is God. Here's one more testimony. The scriptures, just the scriptures in general, testify that Jesus possesses the attributes of God. Remember Colossians 2.9 says that in Jesus, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I'm gonna highlight 15 of God's attributes that Jesus has according to his divine nature. Let these truths just wash over you. The cumulative effect should be that you wanna worship this person. Jesus is self-existent. The ground or the source of his existence is in himself. God the Son is uncreated. He's independent of all things external to himself for his existence. He is the source of life for everything else. That's why he can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. Jesus is all-powerful. He has infinite power. He's the mighty God. He can do all things consistent with his nature and purpose. He can do whatever he wants. He says, whatever the Father does, that the Son does. Likewise, John 5, 19. Jesus is all-knowing. He knows all things, past, present, and future, simultaneously and eternally, whether actual or possible. It's remarkable. That's why Jesus' disciples say to him, we know that you know all things. It's John 16, 30. Jesus is everywhere present. Jesus is present everywhere at the same time, filling every part of the universe with his whole being. This doesn't mean that God is everywhere present in the same sense, He manifests himself in different ways. He's not in unbelievers like he is in believers. He's not on earth like he is in heaven. And this is why Jesus can promise his followers in Matthew 28, I'm with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. It means he's with you right now. Jesus is all wise. He's a wonderful counselor. He applies his knowledge so that he employs the best means to glorify himself. God the Father created the world through God the Son, John 1.3, Colossians 1.16. So that means that Psalm 104 applies to Jesus. O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom, in wisdom you have made them all. And many who encounter Jesus in the Gospels ask Where did this man get this wisdom? Like in Matthew 13, 54. Jesus is eternal. He is without beginning or end. He has always existed and he always will exist. You can't measure him by time. Jesus claims eternal existence when he says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. That's why the Jews tried to stone him right after he said that. Isaiah 9.6 says that his name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Jesus is unchanging. He is changeless in his essence and purposes. He cannot grow or decay. 
You might be wondering, especially at Christmas time, so did God the Son change when he became a man? And the answer is he changed only in his position, not in his essence and purposes. According to his essence and purposes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. Jesus is incomprehensible. We can comprehend Jesus to some degree. John 17.3 teaches that. But we can't fully comprehend Jesus. That's what we mean by incomprehensible. We can't fully comprehend him because he doesn't have limits, and we do. That's why Paul refers to the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Ephesians 3.19. Jesus is holy, holy. He is majestically transcendent and that he is the creator and everyone and everything else is created. He's holy and that he's morally pure. He's separate from all that is sinful. 1 John 3.5 says, in him, there is no sin. Acts 3.14 says that Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Jesus is true. He is always truthful. He cannot lie, and he's the source of all truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14.6. Jesus is loving he gives himself voluntarily, unselfishly, righteously for the good of others. That's why Paul asks in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus is righteous. His actions and attitudes are always in conformity with his own perfect being. That's why he must punish the unrighteous. Jesus is, according to 2 Timothy 4.8, the righteous judge. It's terrifying. Jesus is faithful. He's trustworthy to always act in accordance with what he says. Revelation 19.11 calls him faithful and true. Faithful. Jesus is merciful. He shows compassion and kindness to miserable sinners. Compassion, kindness to people who need pity because of our condition. James 5.11 says the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Finally, and thank the Lord for this one, Jesus is gracious. He gives undeserved, unwanted favor to sinners and he shows that favor not just to the undeserving, but to the ill-deserving, people who deserve the exact opposite. Jesus is full of grace and truth. I'm just dipping my toe in the water here, guys. This is amazing. This is Jesus. And this overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that Jesus possesses the attributes of God. So the witness Jesus receives from others shows that he's God. Reason number two, the words Jesus speaks show that he is God. The words he speaks 
What did Jesus claim about himself? I'll highlight four claims. First, Jesus claims to be God. Now, Scripture doesn't ever record Jesus saying, I am God. You can't find that in Scripture. But Jesus essentially asserts, I am God, when in John 10, 36, he says, I am the Son of God. And in John 5, 17 and 18, when he refers to God as his Father, when Jesus said, I am the Son of God, when he said that God is his Father, how did the Jews respond to his words? They accused him of blasphemy. John 10, 33, they say, you, being a man, make yourself God. That's how they responded to his claim to be the son of God. And to further support this, just consider that when Jesus asks Peter who he is, Peter says, this is Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, does he mean that Jesus is the son of God the way that a, a, a male young man, a boy, is the son of his father? Is that what Peter means? Can't be. So Peter looks into the eyes of a human who's roughly his same age, same height, same skin color, and he essentially confesses, you are God. That's why in the next sentence, Matthew 16, 17, Jesus acknowledges that Peter's confession required the father's revealing. The Jewish concept of son means to partake of the qualities and characteristics of whatever a person or object is said to be a son. For example, James and John, sons of thunder. Judas, son of destruction. Barnabas, son of encouragement. The Jews equated the title son of God with God. To be the son of God is to be God himself. It's to be equal with God, John 5.18. For Jesus to claim that he is the son of God is to say that he possesses the very essence and qualities of God. Further, Jesus claims to have authority over God's laws and institutions. What does he claim? I'll give you five examples from the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew 12, 6, Jesus claimed to have authority over the temple. Matthew 12, 8, Jesus claimed to have authority over the Sabbath. Matthew 5, Jesus claimed to have authority over the law of Moses. Matthew 16, Jesus claimed to have authority over the church. And Matthew 28, Jesus claimed to have authority over, let's go for it, everything in heaven and on earth, all of it. He claims to have authority over it all. Further, Jesus claims to be the object of saving faith. Matthew 11, Jesus invites you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, he says. In John 3, 
He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And Jesus claims to have attributes of God. We just considered many of those claims when we saw how the scriptures testify that Jesus possesses the attributes of God. This is why in John 16, 15, Jesus makes a sweeping claim. All that the Father has is mine. Wow. All that the Father has is mine. Jesus claims to have attributes of God. So that's reason two. The words Jesus speaks shows that he is God. Reason three, the works Jesus did, is doing, and will do show that he is God. The works that Jesus did, is doing, and will do show that he is God. I'll highlight just 10 of those works. Jesus created everything. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus sustains everything. Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. He preserves what he created. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus performed miracles. The gospels record 35 of Jesus' miracles, and he's many more. These miracles demonstrate his infinite power, that he is the mighty God. Jesus defied the laws of nature, Matthew 8. He cast out demons, Mark 1. He healed people of sickness, Luke 4. He raised people from the dead, Luke 7. And he defeated death by raising himself, from the dead. Jesus never sinned. First Peter 2 says he committed no sin. Jesus forgives people of their sins. Mark 2 and Luke 5. In Luke 5, the scribes and Pharisees asked, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins, and he has the authority to forgive sins because he's God. And Jesus saves people from their sins. Acts 4, 12 says, There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He gives eternal life to people. He says about his sheep in John 10, I give them eternal life. Can you do that? Can you give somebody eternal life? Jesus is building his church. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus answers prayer. He says in John 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Ask me and I will do it. Jesus will, in the future, judge all people. The Father, according to John 5, has given all judgment to the Son. And Jesus will make all things new. He says in Revelation 21, 5, 
Behold, I am making all things new. That means our resurrected bodies. That means this new earth. These 10 activities that Jesus did, is doing, and will do are the types of activities that only God can do. Jesus is God. That's the third reason the works Jesus did, is doing, and will do show that he is God. Now ready for our fourth and final reason. The worship Jesus receives shows that he is God. The worship Jesus receives shows that he is God. Here's the principle for this reason. Only God deserves worship. Only God deserves worship. So that means you should never worship a creature. Jesus responds to Satan in Matthew 4 by quoting Deuteronomy 6. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That means that you shouldn't worship an angel. Every time an angel occurs to people in scripture, they're terrified and they have to say, don't be afraid. They're, they're fearsome creatures. They're magnificent creatures. In Revelation 22, John writes this. When I heard and saw these things, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. What happened next? But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The angel's saying, don't worship me. I don't deserve worship. Worship God. And this also means that you shouldn't worship a mere man. Acts 10, when Peter entered, uh, Cornelius met him and fell down at Peter's feet. Cornelius worshiped Peter. And the text says, Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. So the principle here is that only God deserves worship. You shouldn't worship a creature like an angel or a mere man, only God deserves worship. So there's our principle. So now let me show you about Jesus receiving worship. Jesus receives worship as if he is God. Matthew records this in Matthew 14, 32 and 33. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Further, God the Father demands that others worship Jesus. John 5, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son for this purpose, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Worship the Son just as you worship the Father. God the Father commands the angels to worship Jesus. In Hebrews 1, 6, let all God's angels worship him. Further, doxologies, these are expressions of praise. Doxologies in the New Testament praise both God the Father and Jesus. Listen to Jude 25 as an example. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And some doxologies praise exclusively the Son, like 2 Timothy 4.18 and 2 Peter 3.18 and Revelation 1 and Revelation 5. They praise only the Son. And finally, every person 
will worship Jesus. Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him, referring to Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So to summarize, those are four reasons from the Bible that Jesus is God. The witness Jesus receives from others shows that he is God. The words Jesus speaks shows that he is God. The works Jesus did, is doing, and will do show that he is God. And the worship Jesus receives shows that he is God. So maybe you have patiently listened to me make this case from the Bible that Jesus is God, and yet you still think something like this. You think, you know, I, I agree, Jesus was a brilliant moral teacher and philosopher, but I don't think he's God. In other words, you acknowledge Jesus was a genius, and he taught a lot of good and profound teachings, but you don't think he's God. C.S. Lewis addresses this viewpoint in his famous book, Mere Christianity. I'm just going to read a paragraph from that to you. Here's what Lewis says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him and, as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So here's what Lewis is arguing. The logic is, number one, if Jesus is not Lord, then he's a liar or a lunatic. And we could mention one more option, a, a legend. Second step in the logic. Jesus is neither a liar nor a lunatic. And we could add that he's also not a legend because the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus of history. So the conclusion necessarily follows. Therefore, Jesus is Lord. Now, we love the Christmas season because it's a special time to adore Christ the Lord. God the Son took on flesh. He became an incarnate baby boy in order to save his people from their sins. We don't ooh and ah over the little baby Jesus because he's so cute. We marvel at God's undeserved kindness toward us sinners and we worship our creator, our savior, our king. Remember that if Jesus is not God, then you don't need to obey him. He can't save you from God's wrath. You shouldn't trust him to save you. 
He's a liar and he can't give you eternal life and he's not exalted at God's right hand. But the Bible tells us over and over that Jesus is God. Because Jesus is God, you need to obey him. He can save you from God's wrath. You should trust him to save you. He is trustworthy and he can give you eternal life and he is exalted at God's right hand. So you are under the authority of King Jesus right now, whether you acknowledge him or not, and you owe him your allegiance. So what does that mean for you right now? If you are not following Jesus as your savior and king, then what are you waiting for? Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners, and God will save you if you turn from your sins and trust Jesus. That's good news. The Bible calls it the gospel, the good news. And after the service concludes, I encourage you to continue this conversation with a friend who's part of our church. Some of us will be up front here and would love to talk and pray with you. And finally, what does the deity of Christ mean for the rest of you? Most of you are following Jesus as your savior, as your king. You're continuing to repent of your sins. You're continuing to trust Jesus. You were spiritually dead, now you're spiritually alive. You've experienced the new birth. You're born again. How should you respond to the truth that Jesus is God? One simple way to respond is to lay down any arms of rebellion that you are carrying and submit to King Jesus. Are you savoring a secret sin? Do you have a relational tension that you should attempt to resolve? Are you investing your time and money and other resources for his sake and not primarily for your own? You will never regret following King Jesus. Trust him. Everything he commands you is for your joy. You'll be happier if you treasure Jesus instead of treasuring sin. We want to treasure Christ in all of life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is God. We acknowledge the authority of King Jesus. We gladly submit to him. We gladly follow him. It brings us great joy to adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from the North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.